You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I are joined by Ryan Atkinson, the president and co-owner of Smart Detailing for the first part of a two-part episode talking about everything related to e-commerce and the specialty bike channel. How has e-commerce grown over the past few years for independent bicycle dealers? What is important for the independent bike dealers to know in order to be successful in today's market? Let's get into it. Kelly, were you doing anything fun last week out of the office? Yeah, man, I was at the, I was at the beach for a couple days, like four days, yes. and then I came home and you know, I just generally had a nice time. The, like the local beach where you're at, or did you go somewhere? Uh, well, no, Delaware, Rehoboth. Yeah, cool. It's where the president hangs out, so I figure. Mm. Did you get to hang out with him? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he's probably busy. That makes sense. Uh, maybe kind of during the week. I hope so. Anyway. I would hope so. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, the last, like on Wednesday, the what was left of... The idealistic hurricane definitely came in. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> it was it, the weird thing was it was like a cold hurricane. It was it was like 70, 70, was strange. 70 degrees when that hurricane came through mm. and it had been 90. So it was there's it was a little bit pleasant. <laughs> I kind of liked it. How yeah. about that? Yeah, I um I had like a minor surgery in mid-August. And so I haven't been able to ride my bike. And this last weekend was my first chance to like ease back into riding. How'd it go? So it was a lot of fun. Great. Fine. I mean, I'm uh, I'm always really critical of myself. And I, like after spending three weeks off the bike, getting back on for the first time, I wasn't as strong as I wanted to be. And especially because my wife was riding alongside me with her e-bike and she's like, she's waiting for me at the top of the hill, <laughs> uh, which isn't usually how it goes. I'm just like super critical of, of my poor performance. Just, you know, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm not that competitive, but a little part of me does hate someone else waiting for me at the top of the hill. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is, it's better to be on the bike than off the bike. Yeah. This is good training for you. You know, when you're in your fifties mm-hmm. and you're, you're still competing against your 30 year old self. That'll be fun for you. Yeah. 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 Great. Thanks. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm looking I'm, forward to. I'm just, you know, trying to prepare you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the other thing too, the first of September is the opening day of dove hunting season everywhere in the country. Did you go? And I I have gone every year since I was a kid and I went this year too, even though I had a wedding to go to at five o'clock that afternoon. So I t- took the day off, hunted a half day, got out of my camo, put on my tuxedo and then went right. to a very lovely wedding. Might help me to kill some things before I go to a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's like it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it's always it's sort of a holiday for me. Like it marks the end of summer and the beginning of fall when we go dove hunting. And it's uh, something I've done since I was a kid. And and a lot of it's, I think, based in tradition for me, but something I really enjoy doing. And I'll only go out once a year on that day. I don't go out any other day, but it's a lot of fun. Nice. None of that hunting story has anything to do with our guest today, but that's okay. We're going to use this as a transition to welcome Ryan Atkinson from Smarty Tailing to the podcast. Ryan, I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. Were we recording that whole time? The whole time. Yep. It should have warned you when you came into the room. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We'll cut out out the part about all the illegal activities, which you... (laughs) Leave that in. Oh yeah, that's definitely staying in. 
Yeah. Don't leave in the part of me trying to figure out how you work headphones. Okay. Petty theft, no problem. I'm going to check Petty the statute theft. of limitations on sign theft for you. It was it was last week. I'm sure it's still. Uh, well, you cross state lines, right? If I learned anything from watching the Dixie oh, yeah, Hazard, it's that you're out of the jurisdiction and you're, you're safe yeah, now. Ben venturing into a federal crime great thank you both yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ooh, maybe i took that the wrong way i don't know i say no um, sign no crime i haven't seen yeah. anything there's no video yeah. i haven't seen it i think you made the whole thing up I yeah think. you two are notorious liars totally <laughs> um yes what a, a we've, we're already hot this morning this is great um Ryan, thrilled to have you here. I'd love for you to take a few minutes to introduce yourself and Smart Detailing and tell us what position y'all serve in the market. Cool. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for having me. Your podcast is great. You, the dynamic between you two is just a joy to listen to. And you keep episodes short, which I hope I can stick to that. So yeah, Ryan Atkinson, uh, a lifetime in bikes, started off turning wrenches, managing shops. Uh, went to go work for Trek Bicycles for a number of years, worked in their marketing team. Then my wife and I ventured out and started our own marketing company with the intent of helping independent retailers market more effectively to consumers. In 2016, the opportunity presented itself uh, to merge our company with Smart Detailing, which is the number one provider of bike shop websites in the U.S., and have built an amazing team. And together, we've transformed uh, and modernized the application so that you know, we're going to talk today about kind of bike shop e-commerce, and thankfully, the the, the systems are now um, kind of highly functional, competitive. Mm -hmm. I'd say on par with nationwide retailers like REI in terms of speed and effectiveness and ADA compliance, all the things you want to um, have work in a, a website. And we've got big plans for the future as we move more into helping bike shops become you know, even more competitive and reduce friction in the process of running their businesses. I love it. I, I like that you said a lifetime in bikes. That's fun. Very cool. I, I didn't realize you were a mechanic. That's how I got my start too, was wrenching way back when. Honestly, I break the whole Never thing down to being a mechanic. Just the, the, the simplicity of bikes really started the joy of it, but then also being a service rider in particular and learning how to communicate about complex things in easy and approachable ways. And um, mm. I think that's been the foundation of the, the marketing career as well. How interesting. Yeah, I I was also a service writer, so it's funny that we continue to overlap. Yeah, I I never thought of myself as a salesperson, but after a few years of doing that, I was like, well, you know, maybe I that's exactly what I am, you fool. But yeah, I, I really enjoy that and having that opportunity to connect with customers and help make sure that they're having fun on their bikes because if it's not working, it's no fun. I have to play me uh, for a second because I want to be part shoot. of the kids' club. I was also but Mostly, I was sold at the shop. I managed the shop. It was Island Triathlon bike in Hawaii. No, right? that's. But I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if the mechanic in me is what drove me to research, or or you know just selling ideas. I don't know. But I I agree with you guys. Okay, I'm out. I just want no, to. It all it all, <laughs> it, it all comes together. I think Patrick described the journey perfectly. Like you, you like you like the thing, uh, and then before you know it, it turns out that you're actually selling it. Um, but it's really just yeah. building relationships and, and then, yeah, it's mechanics trying to constantly make things better. Constantly trying to make things better. I like that. So e-commerce for specialty bike shops, how has that changed over the last few years? Like maybe before the pandemic or even just since the pandemic, 
what's different now than three, five, 10 years ago? Well, I think, you know, you and I have talked a lot about what's happening in general retail versus bike. And I think in general retail, e-commerce market penetration has been just on a steady rise of, you know, from 1% of total retail up to about 15% pre-COVID. Bike shops definitely trailed that, Um, Mm -hmm. but there was a major acceleration in bike during COVID, which has persisted. So you know, the typical client of smart detailing um, today is selling about $80,000 a year on their website. Pre-COVID, that was only 20%. Today, we have over 25 dealers doing north of a million dollars a year online um, with several of those in the three, four, and $5 million range. Pre-COVID, there were only five dealers doing north of a million um, and nobody doing more than two and a half. And so in general, you know, when viewed in, in aggregate, all dealers are doing better, um, mm-hmm. but then the, the the independent bike shops who've chosen to be really competitive in the space I mean, have have really transformed their business. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a huge growth in the last few years. It's transformative. Yeah. yeah, and you know, in in the early months of COVID, I mean, you know, obviously it was an incredibly stressful time for our customers, but I mean like we were a safety net for many. I mean, many, many markets closed down and, and, you know, one large dealer, you know, they were doing a quarter million dollars a week just off of their website, you know, and that, that's, and that was all, that was their only option. I mean, they could just meet customers Mm -hmm. out front, out the front of their store. So day to day, obviously it's not, it's not those numbers, but, you know, retailers recognize like, Oh, this is, this is good business. This is important business and business. I don't want to lose to anybody else. Yeah, let's talk about stickiness for a second, because I've gotten a million questions about stickiness of participation of market activity. Um, With regard to e-commerce, how have we seen retention of some of that business since the pandemic? With the understanding that, you know, like we, 2020 and early 21 were really unique in how much market activity there was. And so like, no, we're not still hitting those numbers, but some of these habits, some of these consumer preferences for convenience, I sort of like wrap it all up in convenience. If I know I can have Indian food delivered to my door for like an extra 10 bucks on a Friday night, I'm 10 out of 10 times going to have that Indian food delivered. And, And that translates to a lot of other preferences throughout the marketplace. And if there are effective ways to engage with e-commerce and get the products I need, either me picking up at the the shop or having it delivered. I I would expect some of that, uh, some of those habits to be maintained post COVID or or what, whatever we would call 2023. Um, in in this market where we're not dealing with stay at home orders and social distancing, how have some of those e-commerce trends stuck since the pandemic? I mean, I think that there's they're very sticky. I mean, once once a habit forms, um, especially around con- convenience, you know, time is yeah. this, time's an interesting one because it's a it's a commodity for all of us. But at the same time, things like social media distraction has taken up a lot of time. So like the convenience of living your life, so that you have more time to scroll through Instagram, seems to um, <laughs> uh, both seem to be important trends in society. Yeah. Um, but I think it's things like, you know, when's the last time you went to a restaurant without looking at pictures of the food, you know, before you went like it's and it's just, it's largely the same for shopping. Like, you know, I'm I'm not going to go look to try on trail running shoes unless I've been able to check to see whether or not they have the shoes I want in stock. And 
and I have gotten, and I, and I say me, but I, I think that I'm, rep, I'm in some ways representative of shoppers as a whole. There's more impulse purchasing. You know, I'll see something on social media that interests me and I immediately open a browser and start kind of looking for it, add it to a cart, you know, before you know it, I've justified the expense. And so the, the reduced <laughs> friction that comes and, the, and, and, and um, kind of the ability to have more information, uh, it isn't going anywhere. And the, and the numbers back it up. I mean, I think the, if you look at just market share of e-commerce, it has basically kind of returned to the normalized growth trend of a, you know, give or take a 1% a year. Um, okay. But when you look at total dollars, I mean, last year was the first billion dollar, you know, e-commerce market in the U.S. And then just looking at our numbers, I mean, you know, average sales being four times higher for, for a dealer than it was three years ago. I mean, if you if you had 4x growth in your overall business, I mean, that's that's a game changer. And so when you're looking at just one category, it certainly certainly warrants your attention. Just considering uh, consumer behavior and online consumer behavior, particularly post-pandemic. So let's just say from, I'm going to start from April 2020 forward, that behavior online changed a bit in the sense that consumers are, are looking for something maybe a little bit different than just a specific product. Maybe they're looking for an experience or they're really trying to find maybe they're they're scrolling for happiness, right? And maybe maybe a purchase is gonna is gonna push that button for them, and release a little a little bit of you know um, whether it's oxytocin or whatever hormone that pleases their brain, dumps into their brain after the purchase, and it's and it's just a different kind of behavior than we've seen before. Um, what do you think of that? And how can retailers really take advantage of that? Well, I think that. You know, on the, I think that a retailer needs to make sure that the A, there is accessible to that, those impulsive shopping behaviors as possible. You mentioned experience. I think amongst our clients, the, the vast majority of bike shops, when they hear the word experience, they, they think of the very unique experience they can deliver when a customer walks through the door. They think about what's the experience of buying a bike from a bike shop from buying online. And that is an incredibly important way to view that word experience. But we have to put the customer first and, and that, that way that they want to experience, not just a retailer, because they're not, they're not, you know, you know we, uh, Patrick and I've talked about like Google search index data. Pre-COVID, the volume of searches online for bike shop exceeded best bike, which is a, a signal of just, I'm shopping for a bike. The last two years that has reached parity with each other and then and then reversed. And so consumers are shopping for a product now and choosing a channel second. And so a retailer has to insert themselves in that product shopping experience so that they get FaceTime with the customer. So there's an opportunity for the customer to come in and have that secondary experience. Um, so I certainly hope that the majority of retailers recognize that is that in this world of choices and world of convenience where you close the sale mat matters less than did you have the opportunity to engage right to build a relationship with that customer agreed right how important is it for you to not only know your customers but know your potential customers in a market well i think you know if I, if we're talking to somebody with a really strong marketing focus so i think i think all of us here 
have relationships with both retailers and brands and suppliers. And if you're talking to a brand and supplier, you typically have somebody who has a, an education or marketing, that's their full-time job, that knowing your customer component is incredibly important. For the average bike shop who might be listening to this, I don't think you have the bandwidth to, to overly focus on that. I think that, I think that you need certain behaviors in order to increase the likelihood that the people who have done business with you are going to come back to you and that people who are likely to shop in your space will find you. And I don't mean, and one of the reasons I think you can afford to do that is because Google is so dang good. Like you don't really need to know your customer demographics very well if you just adequately fund a Google shopping campaign because Google connects all the dots for you. So I don't, Kelly, I don't know if that's a dissatisfying answer, but I'm a pragmatist and, and that's really what the bike shop market looks like. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, and, you know, just thinking about what we used to do back in Hawaii to get customers in the door and get them back in the door. And some of it had to do with not selling them, you know, we'd sell them the most expensive bike we could, but it was, you know, the idea, the the story of what experience they were going to have and that back and forth between us and the customer about what they were going to do with the bike. It wasn't about the, it wasn't so, you know, you had to go over the, te the technical aspects of the product, but what they were really interested in talking about was what they were going to do and what they could expect to feel and, and all of those things. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a market researcher, so it's, it's sort of my job and I do it naturally 24 seven to, you know, try and think, how could I reach that person? You know, how could I, how could I, you know, basically use my empathy to understand what they want, what they're looking for and what, and how I can satisfy that need. So the answer is yes and no. I mean, you've got to be a pragmatist. You can't spend all your time like I do thinking about things like that, but you know, well, I have a chance. I'm, I'm here to offer my services to people that are interested in becoming OIA members. I think you really should. You get access to high quality and current and reliable market research, but yeah, I mean, I think, I'm just super interested in in how consumer behavior has changed, especially in terms of online shopping. And you have, I mean, I I see your posts, man. You're an expert in this, and so you know, I'm, I'm trying to draw out, out of you like the the most profound things you know that would help a retailer that really doesn't understand e-commerce very much. You know, maybe they resisted it for a long time and they kind of had to go into it. What can you tell them that will really just you know, give them a kind of an instant boost. Well, for the ones who haven't given it a shot yet, typically there's a, there's a, there's a fear underlying that it's, it's there, it may be expressed as a tactical or strategic point of view, you know, things like that's not my business or I, you know, but typically it's rooted in fear of, can I compete? Can I afford to do it? Um, am I uh, am I going to see a reduction in margin? Am I going to have to increase my staffing to do it? Can I do it with my current you know, physical footprint? Things things like that. And so, if I, for that retailer, I would say, you know, don't think that dipping your toe in the water is the same as jumping in the deep end. So the the best mm -hmm. way to overcome those fears is to experiment a little bit. There there, there is very little getting in the way of you getting an e-commerce website, turning the shopping cart on, sending an email blast, see what happens. I mean, you know, what does it feel like to process an order a day? What does it feel like to, to do 10? 
let that testing process validate whether or not it is or isn't the right fit for you. But the numbers don't lie. I mean, if if that at eighty thousand dollar a year number, you know, I don't know the total sales of each of our clients, but if we say that typically that's five to ten percent of their total sales, like are those net new sales? What if only half of them are net new? Like that's like in a, in, a, in an environment where growth is so challenging, why would you pass up on that growth? I wouldn't. I don't know, Patrick. Would yeah? You- <laughs> no, 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 no. I was. I was looking for the same snarky answer. No, I, I wouldn't. I leave money on the table. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why not just dip your toes in, experiment a little? Yeah. And and remain flexible to the, the fact that, well, if this isn't working out, fine. But if, uh, you know, money talks and if if we're finding new customers for reaching new audiences, a success. So let me, I, I've had this question written down and it's come up a few times. Is there any difference between the product mix your dealers are selling online versus what they're selling in store? Like, do you, do you have any data that can speak to whether or not we're we're selling the same like relative number of bikes online as we are in store? If it skews more towards parts, accessories, helmets, that sort of stuff, we skew more towards um, aftermarket um, because yeah. I think on the on the bike side, obviously, there's been a greater comfort level with consumers buying bikes online, mm-hmm. but the number one kind of ROI for our clients is a consumer that walks through the door and says, I saw on your website that you had this bike. Can you show it to me? And so that it's, it's more of a path on the whole, it's a pathway to purchasing bikes in the store. And then in terms of does the makeup of the sold product somewhat parallel the in-store? I think it really depends on the customer type or the retailer type. Okay. So the, the vast majority of our, our customers take, in a non-judgmental way, what I'll call a passive strategy or t- passive approach. They, they turn their website on, they let the data and the integrations do their job, and they'll pick up whatever business comes their way. In that case, it typically mirrors what they have in stock. When you get into retailers, you take on more of a Google advertising strategy. You're casting a broader net and you're letting Google connect a shopper with your business through the product that the consumer is interested in. And because we're connected with virtually the entire supply chain with warehouse integrations to over 40 different warehouses, a retailer can can offer the largest assortment of, uh, of any, any seller in the space. And especially when you plug in all the dropship programs with major distributors, they, they can just pick up those sales and totally externalize the shipping and logistics of it. And so then that really changes the mix. So that retailer with an active Google strategy there's no longer that strong parallel, um, yeah. but they're also, you know, they also don't have to worry about the inventory carrying costs associated with it. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty good fit. Interesting. I, I like what you said about the customer coming in going, Hey, I saw this online. I want to take this for a ride. Kelly and I have these like three themes that we come back to all the time. And in one of them's like uh, reduce cost and maximize profit. And that's how you maximize revenue or, um, um, Maximize revenue. That's how you maximize profit. Don't don't worry about me. I'm a classically trained economist who just screwed that up. Numbers um, minus numbers equal numbers. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is from uh, the statisticians on the call. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, everyone's turned this podcast off now because I just messed it up. But but one of the other things is like um, reducing barriers to information, whether that's participation or whether it's sales. But yeah, I, you know, we we sort of touched on it that this e-commerce platform could be at the very least a way to showcase the products that you sell, so that a customer, like like the the person going to the restaurant, they want to get know like what you might have on the menu. 
customer will want to know what's in stock for them if they were out to go to that store and like, oh, I'm really interested in test riding this bike. Let me see who's got it in stock. And if I find a shop that doesn't have some sort of online platform to showcase the brands and the models they sell, then then I might be likely to cross that shop off my list and just look at the other remaining shops in the area. So so what I'm hearing is that like success isn't necessarily just sales, but success can be using it as a tool to convert into sales in store. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's marketers don't like to talk about a funnel anymore, but mm-hmm. you know you're 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 winning or losing on in search. You know, so it's really when the when the when the customer googles a product, are you is your business or the product you sell in the game at that point? And we all know that. I mean, it's like just look at how you live your lives. You know, your your phone comes out of your pocket before you before your car door closes or your or or your kickstand is is up. Now, you know, much like at the hardware store, I know I can just go to the hardware store. If I need drywall screws or work gloves, I, I just go. But yeah. if I'm getting a new power drill, like totally different story. I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna do my research. I'm gonna see what gives me the best value across all vendors. And I'm only gonna go to the store if I know the thing I want is there. Um, so I think it's important for retailers to avoid all or nothing thinking and just realize that the web, the website and, and displaying my merchandise is going to deliver different value to different customers based on the products they might be searching for. Yeah, that totally makes sense. What a great analogy. So Ryan, considering all that, how important is SEO? You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's important. Um, but I think that for us, the most important aspects of SEO are honestly site speed. I mean, that's the thing that Google most cares about is, is when a customer clicks a link, are they going to get the information that they want fastest? From a product standpoint, structured data on the product detail pages, very, very helpful. From a rich content standpoint, telling the story of e-bikes, very, very important. But increasingly for those product searches, it's, it's, it's bypassing SEO and delivering Google your product file. So Google now has a free service called uh, Google Local Inventory Listings. And you can submit your product feed to them. And then it just, it, they don't need this, the crawling of your site SEO. They have the raw data. And then like it or not, if you pay to boost that exposure, that's, that's really what separates the, the, um, the retailers who, who who count e-com as a major part of their growth strategy versus those who are seeing it as a growing part of their business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, in, in many cases, you do have to spend money to make money. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's intuitive. But I think there was an era where things like it, it seemed like there was free money on the Internet. It seemed like uh, it seemed like email marketing was the was the free pathway to to um, uh, promotions. And, you know, that the. the those eras end. Consumer preferences change. Businesses <laughs> need to monetize their product. Oh, also, I mean, we're capitalists. Um, if there's something of value, I'm going to try and repackage it and sell back to you if I can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's not a bad thing. I mean, we we want everybody to be somewhat self motivated. Uh, that's kind of what drives entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, I and I get stuck thinking in ecom. I'm always thinking about you know the experience of the customer. The customer experience on your website is absolutely key. And one of the things that drives me crazy is our bad product descriptions. You know, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to spend $8,000 on a bike. Tell me why I should buy your bike. I mean, what, what is it that, that is going to attract me? And in a lot of cases, 
it's it's nonsense. Like I, there's no way to tell. I can't pick a bike. I can't pick a ski. I can't pick a lot of the things that I that I like to use outdoors because the product descriptions are woefully mm. inadequate to help customers, especially new customers or new beginners. And we've got 14.5 million new participants in outdoor. So yeah, I would admonish everybody to to beef up your product descriptions and explain why a customer should buy it. Um, why should why should I buy a particular bike over another on your site? And who is the bike for? Is it for me? Um, is it a women specific bike? Is it not? Is it downhill? What is it? Tell me tell me what I can do on it. What experiences I can expect to have? And I think for me that would go a long way in helping me. Be way more impulsive at about one in the morning when I'm shopping thousand <laughs> dollar bikes. So I I totally agree. Um, and that and and so really one of one of Smart Detailing's greatest strengths is our product data. So that's that's kind of the cornerstone of our business. Is we pull products in from hundreds of suppliers. We groom and enrich that content so that it is consumer friendly, shoppable, offers the bulk the bulk of what you described. Um, including images and and all the retailer has to do is connect their point of sale system or connect the supplier warehouse and then it automatically drives display and we're connected with a reviews platform that distributes reviews from a brand website to retailers across retailers and so it, it provides that rich shopping experience because a challenge with what you described is time and most retail i mean it's a it's a low margin business the owner has to wear every single hat and to to devote your payroll to having somebody create that content and maintain it for you let alone you trying to make time you know after your kids go to bed and before you pass out to 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 do it it's really impractical and so that's we really tried we really try to make it as easy as possible for retailers to deliver as close to what you described as possible. Yeah, that sounds great. Where do I sign up? <laughs> Smartdetailing.com. Uh, request a demo. Yeah. We'll we'll put a link in the episode description. Um, well, let's let's take a pause there for a second because I feel like we could keep talking forever. And um, I would love to keep talking forever. Let's let's pause this episode here. We're going to continue our discussion next week. Um, so make sure to circle back next week and, and we'll pick up right where we left off here with Ryan and Kelly. Here we are. Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.